0: remind you that I am a guest host, and I appreciate the trust that Imagine Publicity is putting in myself to present their guests and their stories in a way to shine bright lights on these change agents from their respectful fields. It is easier to build a strong children than to repair broken men. Frederick Douglass. A quote you'll find on a website called Human Rights for Kids, synonym HRFK. We're with the CEO and founder today, James Dold. He is a lawyer from graduating from the University of Maryland, and he worked in founding this organization in May of 2017. He has an interesting story, but kind of sad story. We've heard him before, but each one and each story is so important, and I believe this is the kind of person that takes his story and makes it into miracles. He grew up in the inner cities of Las Vegas, and he went through a lot of things that we have here and unfortunately have come to, numb to to a bit, uh, unfortunately, sexual abuse physical abuse, mental abuse, from not only himself, but his cousins, his siblings, and it's a story that we all know, drugs, alcohol, things that affect parents that aren't quite capable of doing the kind of job that we all envision in our minds of being good parents. So I ended up getting with an organization that he thought would make him a better person you can read his story, it's about the Boy Scouts, but as a story we've heard before, he was friended by some parents that took him in and he lured him away from his original parents into their home and little did he know that it might have been and was as sick as what he had left behind. They started grooming him and forcing him into sexual abuse. And what he calls on his website domestic servitude, i.e., child trafficking. It's a sad story, but the incredible thing about it is that James Dold, CEO and founder of this organization, has been able to turn around and be a catalyst for change in so many areas. So, first of all, thank you, James, and thank you for joining me on air today to talk about your incredible story and the incredible work you're doing out there.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jillian. It's our a pleasure to be with you, and we're excited to share with your guests, you know, these important issues.
0: I really liked your um, quote that I found on your website from Frederick Douglass, and I want to add it, it's a broader thing other than just men. It's young women, too. When I was reading over your information that you sent over, I always like to hear guests and what their point of view is because I want to make sure that we get everything that needs to be said that's important to your story. I found something fascinating in the points you sent over, James, in that. People are believing that sex trafficking and all of that that's going on just kind of came out of thin air. But you really had a logical progression backwards of the genesis of where this all started from laws that were enacted in 1980s and the early 90s. Can you go ahead and describe to us a little bit of where you think this whole organizational thing started?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the genesis really for the uh, modern-day movement to end human trafficking and modern-day slavery uh, started as a result of a Supreme Court decision that had come down in 1988. And prior uh, to that decision coming down, uh, the U.S. uh, Justice Department had actually prosecuted a lot of what we would consider to be modern day human trafficking cases under existing involuntary servitude and peonage type statutes. Now, what had happened over the years is that there was basically a jurisdictional split across the country and the courts of appeals had interpreted language in the statutes differently. Basically, the big question for the Supreme Court in the 1988 case was whether or not the involuntary servitude statute was broad enough uh, to cover special classifications of victims including immigrants or or children or to take into account uh, more subtle forms of coercion and manipulation such as psychological abuse or psychological manipulation and in that case the supreme court found that uh, in fact the the current involuntary servitude statute at the time was not that broad, that it didn't cover those more subtle forms of coercion that we really associate with human trafficking offenses today. Um, And in particular, you know, especially when we're talking about children, and I think this is a common misconception that a lot of people have, uh, when we're talking about children, oftentimes what we're talking about are are kids who – have been groomed just like any other, you know, child sex, sexual predator. You know, they target kids uh, because they, you know, they low income or they have low self esteem or for a whole host of other uh, reasons that make kids vulnerable, including just, you know, what it's like to be a teenager or go through, you know, a traumatic event. Right. So even something like a, you know, parents getting separated or divorced can be traumatizing for kids. And that can make them susceptible uh, to an older adult uh, kind of moving in and taking advantage of that and building up the trust. And what that process really looks like is an adult uh, gaining the trust of a child by essentially pretending to be their friend or sort of like a cool adult that they know and then violating that trust. Uh, by engaging in in sexual abuse or physical abuse or or sort of harm, right? So there's this cycle of violence that happens oftentimes with kids. And what will happen is through that process, the child will develop what's known as a traumatic bond. And these traumatic bonds, they're similar to what we see in exploitative cults. Uh, They've been commonly referred to in popular culture as, as Stockholm syndrome back in the day that used to refer to it, we were talking about domestic violence as battered women syndrome, sort of the same sorts of cycles of violence that sort of create these unhealthy bonds that uh, where essentially the child feels this dysfunctional attachment uh, to the person who's abused them, almost this sense of misplaced loyalty if you will. And it's a result of that that the child is really willing to do anything that the person asks of them. And that's Certainly was the case uh, in my situation and so many other kids around the country who get exploited in this way. It's really a result of this traumatic bonding dynamic that, that happens. And so, you know, when we looked at the 1988 Supreme Court case and sort of the ruling that sort of did away with how some jurisdictions were able to use the law to go after those situations, there was a need for Congress to step in and passed the Trafficking Victims Protection Act in 2000 and the subsequent amendments that strengthen those protections in, in the subsequent years, including in 2008 and 2013, um, to make sure that the statutes were broad enough to make sure that these more subtle forms of coercion uh, were captured by the law so that prosecutors and law enforcement had all the tools at their disposal uh, to protect vulnerable children who are subject to this type of psychological manipulation.
0: So in 1990 let's let I just want to back up one more step and say in in the 1990s they passed a law that made it easier then for the children to be prosecuted and taken into adult criminal justice system and try them as adults. So this kind of started the catalyst down the road of these children that you're talking about that were coerced into these kind of situations, they were brought into the adult criminal system, tried and then housed in adult uh, facilities for adult offenses. And you're saying that that laid the groundwork for this group almost, let's say generational, I suppose, of these young kids that were incarcerated early and now are coming out, but yet in the system itself they started uh, going through what's called adverse childhood experiences. So you're suggesting that that was a part of why all this sex trafficking is coming to light now.
1: Well, I think that, you know, sort of, sort of look at the issues sort of separately um, so with sex trafficking I think that there was this dynamic particularly of child sex trafficking where girls who were being exploited were not seen as victims right they were seen as criminals they were seen as people who were complicit and wanted to engage in this behavior and it was part of the dehumanization of particularly you know particularly of kids of color at this time um, and and girls in particular, where you know there's sort of this patriarchal archical dynamic of, you know, there are these girls they're being abused and exploited, but you know because they're engaged in what people were thinking was uh, willing behavior, they're labeled a certain way, they're treated a certain way, and their status as children is completely discarded. So so we're dealing with that, you know, in the sex trafficking context. At the same time that we're also dealing with. Uh, you know, this, this coming of age of what was termed at the time, uh, you know, juvenile super predators, this idea that there were kids who were more violent and less remorseful than ever before. They were characterized as godless, jobless, and fatherless, and states were really encouraged to pass laws making it easier to transfer and try them in the adult criminal justice system without taking into account or without really thinking about the root causes of why a child would commit a delinquent act or how a child would engage in certain types of behavior. It was sort of almost assumed that we had these children who were just bad kids. And they were doing this on their own free of their own free volition, of course, we know that's not true uh, because the super theory was debunked. the authors of the theory since repudiated it, uh, but we're still left with the devastating effects of all of those laws and having to go back years later and try to you know make better sense of the justice system to reorient the justice system to a more victim centered approach where we're looking at the reasons why kids end up in the system to begin with, which is exactly, as you mentioned, what we contend to be uh, the result of adverse childhood experiences and early unmitigated childhood trauma uh, that children experience early on in their lives. And when it's not addressed, it just continues to become a snowball effect. and Kids end up in the justice system, they end up dropping out of school, they end up um, you know, uh, getting addicted to drugs, they end up with all of these different negative life outcomes as a result of all of this early childhood trauma that they experienced. And our response in the 80s and 90s was just to look at these kids as bad kids to throw them away. Um, and it's how you also end up with, you know, these very tragic cases like that of, uh, Sarah Cruzan, or, or more, more recently people are familiar with Centoya Brown's case, but they're very similar in the sense that they were two child sex trafficking victims who um, committed acts of violence against the men who had been abusing them um, and then were basically thrown away by the system, sentenced to die in prison because, again, there was this mindset that these are just bad children. And their backgrounds, everything that has happened to them up until that point, was never considered by the justice system, and that's where you know we have a real problem, uh, because what happened to these girls in particular uh, can be described only as a human rights abuse. Um, you know, when you look at Sarah's case in particular, here was a girl who, at the age of eleven, uh, was groomed and recruited by this trafficker, who from 11 to 13, also raped her, uh, and then from 13 to 16 forced her um, into prostitution and exploited her to the point where she eventually, you know, took a gun and and ended this man's life. Now, you know, I think most people listening would say, you know, isn't that self-defense? Why wasn't she protected? Why wasn't she, you know, treated in the child welfare system? And those are all good questions that I think uh, most reasonable people would say that's what should have happened. Uh, But unfortunately, I think at that time and the way that we were looking uh, at kids at that time, uh, we had really demonized them to the point where we were just willing to throw them away and and let them die in a cage. And um, so it didn't, you know. So it took about almost 20 years for Sarah to get some semblance of justice when Governor Schwarzenegger finally commuted uh, her sentence. But the problem is that we see these sorts of places all over the country. and They happen all the time, Um, even today. Uh, There's another young woman in Ohio who is serving a similar sentence uh, as a result of a crime that she uh, participated in against her trafficker. And Lord only knows why a prosecutor or anybody in law enforcement would be motivated to prosecute a kid in this sort of situation. Uh, We've got to look at these kids as victims, and it, it calls into account the need to do a holistic examination of a child's background and their experiences and why they've ended up in the justice system to begin with uh, before we start metting out these very harsh, overly punitive sentences that were really designed for adults and not children.
0: When I do some math here, so we're talking about the late 90s, 1990s is what we're talking about, this law situation that – brought these young kids from 11 to 13, like you're talking about, into the adult system and probably are coming out now and they should be between the ages of 19 and 20. And you're saying that they came out with, from the juvenile system of incarceration and the adult let out, they have this adverse childhood experiences. 90% of the children have at least two of them. And so now they're out on the streets at 19 and 20, James. What are they doing? So are you saying that this is just the next cycle of the 11 and 13-year-old kids, girls and boys, when it's a repercussion effect of what we started back then in fast forward are 19 and 20 now, where are we at with these laws and what are these kids that you're talking about, basically throwaway kids, right? These are the kids you see out on the street that are doing what they learned because they didn't learn anything in the, within the system and treated like criminals. Have we made any strides at undoing this illogical path we've been going down, or are we still in the same kind of punitive uh, position of doing the same thing to children now?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, it, I, I should say that, you know, I think for the lucky kids, I mean, it's 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 striking to say lucky. Um, kids that are lucky who, who end up in this situation, you know, they're coming out at 18 and 19 if they're lucky you know we see okay. some kids as young as 13 who've been sentenced to to life without parole uh in this country um and oh gosh. you know they're you know so we we are talking about some extreme sentences you know there was a recent report that highlighted that for kids under the age of 18 there's you know at least at least uh 10,000 that are serving either life or de facto life sentences across the country. Uh, and that doesn't even begin to take into account uh, kids who are receiving uh, sort of terms of year sentences that range you know, anywhere between 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 year sentences, right? So we are still struggling to even identify you know, how many children have been incarcerated across the country with these extreme types of sentences or who've received the same sorts of mandatory minimum sentences uh, that adults have in the system, and what we know is from the studies that have been done, there are at least seventy-six thousand children every single year where their cases start or are prosecuted in the adult criminal justice system. Um, and so, you know, so on the on the on the front end, I just want to say that you know, if kids are lucky. You know, they're they're coming out at 18 or 19, but oftentimes what we see is some people coming out, and they're in their mid-30s, mid-40s, mid-50s. Um, there was a recent juvenile lifer who was just released who was in his 70s, um, and those people spent their entire lives in prison. And so, you know, that, and that really requires us as a country, I think, to ask the, the question, you know, what are we doing to our children? How are we focusing on on treatment and rehabilitation and treating kids differently from adults? And so, you know, that's that's the first thing that I'd say. I will say that in recent years, uh, thanks to the advocacy efforts of a social organization of ours, um, the Campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth, that there have been significant strides made in the elimination of life without parole sentences for kids. And over the past five or six years or so, Uh, That organization has been able to uh, eliminate uh, life and de facto life sentences in a broad bipartisan uh, coalition of states, including states that many people are always shocked to learn about, states like Texas or Arkansas, uh, West Virginia, Utah, South Dakota, North Dakota, and then states on the more liberal side like Vermont, Massachusetts, and Connecticut. So it's really proven to be a, a pretty strong bipartisan issue where state lawmakers in both parties have begun to stand up and say, life without parole or these extreme de facto life sentences are too extreme for children, no matter what the circumstance. And we need to at least check in on kids to see who they've become, see who they've developed into before we're making the decision to never release them again. Um, And so, you know, and then there's other states too that are beginning to experiment with or have been experimenting with what we would think, what we think to be the, the best modality, which is a treatment modality. So there's um, something called the Mendota Treatment Center in Madison, Wisconsin. It's run by a really that's brilliant. Right. Um, yeah, where is that where you're going? Okay, yeah. So, uh, so you know, so, what? You know that's, and that,
0: that's, that's actually where I was at on radio up there in Madison, Chicago, Lake Geneva area. So I know Mendota, and they have done incredible work. I know that place.
1: That's right. That's right. Um, Greg Van Rybreck, who really sort of was the, you know, initial founder and has run that institution incredibly well, has established, you know, an international reputation. For being able to treat the most difficult uh, kids in the most difficult of circumstances, and those include kids who've committed very violent offenses, um, and have been able to you know treat them to the point where they have a zero percent recidivism rate for kids who go through their program for violent offenses, and they've been opened since the 1990s. And what that tells us is that. These, these treatment, that, you know, these cognitive behavioral treatment that Greg and his team do at Mendota and the group therapy and the, the way that they've structured the system for these kids works. And so the question that we really have to ask ourselves as a country, I think, is, you know, who do we want to be? Do we want to be a country that looks at troubled youth and say, you know what, there's been a failure, there's been a breakdown in the system because we know that almost all of these kids have experienced this early childhood trauma where they've been physically and sexually abused and suffered in, you know, unimaginable harm? Do we want to be a society that, you know, creates a system and treatment modalities to treat these kids so that they have the best chance of coming out and living, you know, good, stable life? Um, or do we want to be a country that throws these children away and condemns them to die in, in prison? And that is the great moral issue of our time particularly in the criminal justice system. Not enough attention has been paid uh, to the most vulnerable casualties of mass incarceration in America, and that's the treatment of our children. And you know, as these conversations continue to unfold nationally, we really have to focus on how is the system treating our children, We're the most vulnerable people who've been ex- abused and harmed in such a way that they are now in a justice system. And what can we do Uh, to provide them the treatment that they never received when they should have received it and give them the best chance to become productive law-abiding citizens.
0: Well said. One of the things I believe in is that everybody has a calling. Everybody is put on this earth for a particular reason of helping other people unconditionally and through love and connection. On paper, James, your story looks a lot like what you're talking about, other than the incarceration point. How and why were you able to thread the needle and get on the other side of where you're at now? How did that happen, and why do you think it happened?
1: Well, (laughs) that is a very, (laughs) I think, complicated question. I get it often, and I never have a... You know, I never have, like, one simple uh, answer for folks. But, you know, there was something, you know, there was a great documentary recently made about Fred Rogers. Um, I believe it was called Welcome to My Neighborhood, or uh, well, Won't You Be My Neighbor, I, I think right. is the name of it. And yeah. one of the things yeah. that Fred Rogers talked about is that, you know, he believed that, you know, all of the social ills could be traced back to love or the lack of it that children receive. Right, which is a very powerful sentiment, and it's one of the reasons that we have the motto at Human Rights for Kids the way that we do—that every because every child deserves hope and love. And if we start the conversation there, uh, we believe that if we give children those two indispensable things that we as human beings need, and also—it's also a biblical reference, right? Hope, charity, and love. The greatest yeah. of these is love. And if we start there, and we provide that to our children then we're going to be a much better society in the long run. And I think for me, looking at, you know, to your question, what was it that allowed me to overcome the circumstances that I did, I think it all goes down to love. And it's it's different forms of love and love from different people. It was love from coaches and teachers and, and you know, people who just showed an interest in me in, in a way that I hadn't been shown it. people who believed in me and taught me that I could be more, than everything else that was happening around me. It was people, you know, it was my wrestling coaches who taught me the value of hard work and dedication, that if you just sort of, you know, you can overcome anything, you know, if you just are willing to work hard enough. And that was a lesson that I learned at a time where I was coming out of a very dark period. I was, you know, trying, you know, at that point, I was, um, I was 15, 16 years old. And, you know, it was winding down right before the, the period where I was able to cut off complete contact with uh, the person who was abusing me and abusing and exploiting me. And, you know, I still had this traumatic bond. And, you know, when you're a kid and you have a traumatic bond like this, uh, it's tough to, to break that, that, that feeling because you feel like you love the person. You feel like they love you and uh, you're willing to do anything for them. And so it really takes A lot of time to get over that and one of the things that helped me I think was being able to divert divert my energy and my focus um, into something that was more positive and constructive and I found that in high school sports and football and in wrestling and and it was in those coaches who I think probably sensed that there was something you you know uh, going on with me uh, and you know took a vested interest in, in you know, helping me through that, even though they didn't know anything about what it was, right? Um, And so you you look at the love of strangers like that, you know, wanting to just take care of kids and and mentor kids and and give them the best chance to succeed, you know. Um, You know, my father, uh, uh, who who raised me, you know, although up until that time, I think we had a sort of a a, a tough, strained relationship after I moved back in um, with my parents, um, he was very, very active in, in my life. He would know, go to my f- football games and he would go to my wrestling matches and, you know, those sorts of things. And so even though I still had a lot of anger towards him and I think it was very difficult, um, especially that first year or so as I transitioned and moved back in with my family, you know, slowly that began to recede. And I think, you know, love carried the day, you know. And it's something that I, I, I think about often. He passed away. Um, back in 2013, but, um, you know, I think it was that that unyielding, uh, unconditional love, even in the face of very difficult and trying circumstances of a teenager who had a lot of anger and was very resentful because of everything that had happened to him, you know, uh, kind of staying the course and just showing that, you know, know, I'm going to be here no matter what, and I'm going to love you no matter what. And I think it was the combination of that, you know, my coaches that, you know, really just kind of – you know, pulled me back into a place where I was able to succeed.
0: Well, and I think you were able to come full circle, which is pretty cool. I mean, you had the second chance with your father and bless him for being able to surrender and come into that uh, common love between the two of you and bless you for forgiving him. That That's a big deal. You know, forgiving at first, hope second. It's It's crazy, but more power to you that you could do that so then let's fast forward I looked at your uh, long list history of what you've been doing and you've one of the things that struck me is that you've been in Washington DC for a very long time that alone yeah. gives, should give you great street cred that you can stay in that you've been involved as an intern and everything else for a very long time So of all people, you really know that system pretty well, it seems like. And so this must have been the auspices of you starting the Human Rights for Kids organization. Let's tap on that a little bit and tell me, get into the nitty and gritty of what you do for that and what you're going forward, your goals are.
1: Absolutely. So, you know, I think it was really, you know, part of it was my my personal history and and. You know, having experienced what i what I did as a child, but also watching my siblings and the struggles that they went through as a result of similar dynamics, as well as the work that I did you know coming out of law school, which was you know sort of it was focused in sort of twofold one was uh doing anti-human trafficking work at, at another organization here in Washington, D.C., called Polaris Project, um, which is where I first learned about uh, Sarah Krusevand's case. Um, back, this was almost 10 years ago now. And um, really pushed our organization to get involved on, in her case uh, to urge Governor Schwarzenegger to commute her sentence. And, you know, I think for me, after having read through her case file, uh, it just became apparent that it was something that really needed to to happen um in order for justice to 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 be done in any semblance of of the word and so you know after that happened in 2010 i continued to work at players uh up until 2013 where you know i traveled across the country um working with law enforcement and prosecutors on uh, passing these laws to protect you know vulnerable children men and women uh, from human trafficking and that also included you know, changing the way that the juvenile and child welfare systems treated children, um, because for a long time, and this is still the case in some jurisdictions, uh, uh, children were being prosecuted, arrested and prosecuted uh, for prostitution-related offenses. Now, uh, this, again, is another conflict in the law, because under the law, you know, any child uh, who's been exploited in, in commercial sex is a victim of trafficking. They are a victim of trafficking. Uh, they're also a victim of, of statutory rape, at the very least, or rape, um, in the case of many of these kids, right? Um, and yet they were being criminalized. And it was, the, it was them who were being looked at as, you know, somehow these bad kids. And so there needed to be this complete policy shift to say, like, no, no, no. You know, there is no such thing as a child prostitute. You know, any child in this situation is a victim, full stop. Uh, no exceptions, no matter what the circumstance. And so that was, you know, I think one of the, that really, that in conjunction with Sarah's case is really what I think opened my eyes to these other injustices in the juvenile and criminal justice system that children were facing um, and how we were just so quick uh, to discard our children and throw them to the mercy of a system that really wasn't designed for them. You know, and and in some states too, what that meant is like even in New York, you know, there was because they they used to have a law where it was if you were 16 years of age, uh, you were prosecuted as an adult no matter what. And so what that meant is you had that the you had these young girls who were victims of of sex trafficking, who were being prosecuted for an offense that was being perpetrated against them. Uh, which makes absolutely no sense and, and is, again, another example of one of these horrific injustices in the system that needed to be rectified. So these were some of the other laws that I was working on while I was at Polaris. And, you know, then I transitioned into uh, the Campaign for the Fair Ascendancy of youth, because upon learning about Sarah's story um, and the fact that there were children who, you know – that while they're not as sympathetic in terms of the facts as Sarah's case are, although there are some who very much are, the one common theme again was that so many of these kids had uh, suffered um, these early childhood traumas and had been abused. And really kind of, you know, you look at the, the fact pattern of their life, what led up to the crime that they committed. And oftentimes they were very serious crimes. These were, you know, violent offenses and the like. Uh, but you you read about what led up to it. And you're like, you know, you're left like, yeah, you know, this kid was doomed from the start. You know, they had no, they had no chance really, right? And that's not to minimize, you know, their actions or what they did, but it is meant to get us as a society to start asking the question of like, why? Because uh, it's not normal uh, for children to, you know, commit offenses. It's not normal uh, for kids to, uh, to engage in in, in violent behavior. Um, it's oftentimes learned or it's oftentimes a result of acting out based on these traumas that they've experienced. And so, you know, sort of looking at all of that and then looking at sort of my own experiences and experiences of of those I grew up with, one of the things that really seemed to be missing uh, was uh, this conversation around early childhood trauma and getting people to understand what happens when that trauma goes unmitigated. And it was against that backdrop that I approached um, a number of state legislators that I've been working with over the years. And these were a collection of Republican and Democratic state legislators who had been working to advance children's rights on a whole host of different issues that included ending life without parole sentences for kids. It ended at, you know, it included people that had focused on fighting uh, human trafficking as well as at Polaris, and oftentimes they were in the same category. Right? So they were also people who had sort of gotten a chance to see uh, these various injustices in each of these different systems that had come into contact with children. Right, and the need to look at our child welfare system, look at our juvenile justice and criminal justice system, uh, to look at you know the healthcare system, to look at housing for kids, and all of these different issues is interconnected, right? And that there were bipartisan issues that we could come up with um, as a collective that we could put out there and that we could advance that would be what was in the best interest of children, and that's what we wanted. Uh, lawmakers in both parties to focus on what what's best for kids. Not not what's the Republican solution. Not what not what's the Democratic solution. What is the right solution for kids? And if we can figure out what that is, we can always find a way to get there. And I think that's what our board of directors have done throughout their long uh, illustrious careers in public service. Um, You know, and and one of the things I'm most proud of with our board of directors is that they, you know, they come from all over. You know, they are – we have uh, Republicans on our board from Utah, Republicans from Arkansas, uh, from Nevada. We have Democrats from Maryland, uh, from Vermont. And one of the beautiful things, I think, about their work together is that they've been able, particularly in this time where I think it's a very – especially in the Beltway, you know, it's a hyper-partisan time. Um, It seems like it's it's so hard for folks to be able to work across the aisle. I think that their work through Human Rights for Kids is a shining example of what can happen when we put aside partisan differences and we ask the question, what can we do to better the lives of children? And that's one of the things, to me, that's the most inspiring about Human Rights for Kids and the work that we're doing uh, to try to make sure that we protect and advance the human rights of little children in this country.
0: Your organization is mainly built on changing laws. Is that what your, your main focus is? Are there services directly linked to the people we're talking about? Are there services for uh, people in this situation to come and you help them or is it, it basically built on changing the system?
1: A lot of it, the bulk of our focus really is on changing the system and helping to educate the public and policymakers and institutional actors on how things can be better as well. You know, sometimes what we see is it's not necessarily that, you know, there's you know, always synonymous or bad feelings that, that, that people have and why unjust policies exist. Sometimes they just don't realize it or they just don't know or they don't understand how things could be different so that we could come up with more just outcomes. But connected to that, too, is that there, there is this sort of healing aspect to our work, which I think is really incredible, because we are led by directly impacted people, right? So um, there's me who started the organization, who leads it, but a big part of our work and one of the values that, we, that that is central to our work is empowerment. And what that means for us is working with people from directly impacted communities, children who have suffered human rights abuses um, to, in their childhood, and being able to, to elevate their voices in these national conversations around these issues. So a great example of that is, is our work with Sarah Cruzan and uh, the initiative around Sarah's Law. And one of the things that's been so incredible about that work is uh, the healing aspect that it's had for for Sarah. Um, You know, I had, um, I told Sarah when we started doing this work together that, you know, I wanted her to have the same experiences that I had when I got a chance to uh, write and and, uh, help pass uh, AB 146 in the Nevada legislature in, in 2013. And that was a bill that criminalized the involuntary servitude of children, which is basically what happened to me when I was a child. So um, because the statute of limitations had run um, at that time, you know, there was no chance for me to really get any, you know, any type of justice in my case. And so uh, the thing that was healing and cathartic for me about telling my story to the Nevada legislature was the passage of this law with the support of the law enforcement community, with the support of the attorney general's office and, and folks in law enforcement. And it, for me, that you know, that bill passed unanimously, and for me it was really um, an expression of, of support and love from the legislature um, saying that what happened to you was wrong and, and we're going to validate it. And so, you know, in my conversations with Sarah over Sarah's law, you know, it, we wanted her to have the same thing, right, which – is a public recognition, a public apology, if you will, uh, for her incarceration, a recognition that her incarceration was unjust to begin with, that a child sex trafficking victim who kills her trafficker uh, should not be uh, put in prison. She should be provided with treatment and services and there should be a child welfare response. Uh, A child in that situation is only in that situation uh, because uh, she was raped and abused and trafficked by this person uh, for so long. And so there's, there's a, a cathartic aspect, a healing aspect uh, to this work. And part of it is um, elevating Sarah's voice so that she can share her truth with the country and with the world. And, you know, a responsibility on our part, right, to respond and to answer, uh, you, you know, Sarah's call for us to be just and to be more merciful, particularly when it comes to kids in her situation. And so even though we don't do direct services, I like to think that a large part of our work has these significant healing properties because it's really about the people who've suffered these human rights abuses and trying to create a world that's more just and more caring and more loving for them.
0: So it sounds like your organization really hones in on changing the systems and the laws, but, James, everybody knows that's a slow and super tedious and really frustrating work to take on because it doesn't happen overnight. Case in point, Sarah's story that you're talking about, How do you stay motivated when the ball moving forward goes an inch forward and 10 back and, you know, it just keeps going back and forth and back and forth? And I understand that you have the goal of changing these laws and systems, but how do you stay motivated in all of that when it's so bulked down with bureaucracy and everything else?
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question. You know, I think you gotta you sometimes you just have to focus on the small victories. Um, and sometimes the small victories aren't the small victories. One of the things that we have created at Human Rights for Kids, we have a unique theory of social change. We call it ripples of hope. And ripples of hope is really born out of this idea that you can create movements and you can change laws in very short periods of time. Uh, by focusing advocacy efforts through a national strategy in different geographic regions of the country at the same time, right? So one of the things that we found is that oftentimes policymakers in states are driven not so much by ideological or partisan concerns as much as they're concerned about regional or geographic concerns. I think there's a cultural thread that ties together different regions of the country in ways that, Uh, sort of partisan allegiances don't necessarily do and so state lawmakers are oftentimes more interested in what their neighbors have done because it's more reflective of the culture in that area so if you can begin to change the culture in one state in a particular region right you kind of get a toehold or foothold in that area what you can do is sort of create this ripple effect that makes it easier uh, to pass laws in subsequent years uh, at a very fast and quick rate, I think you know the uh, the example I gave earlier of the work of the campaign for the fair Disease is a great example of that. And while I was there, you know I developed this strategy that we use to to quadruple in five years the number of states that ban life without pool for kids. And so our theory is really based on this idea that you can maximize, uh, resources to to create change in a, a quick amount of time, but you know even when you can't, right? And there are these setbacks, and sometimes you're doing things that are brand new that sometimes can take a little bit longer to uh, to gain traction. There, you still sort of grasp onto the little victory. So, for example, you know we've worked on a number of bills. Uh, this year alone, uh, but only a couple of them actually became law. And there, there was two down in in Arkansas actually that that actually were enacted. One was a bill to um, require teachers and educators and and administrators in schools to be trained on prevention of human trafficking. Right. So it was an effort to try to make sure that we were protecting on the front end uh, kids in the first instance, so that teachers were better equipped to identify. Uh, trafficking situations, and that even students themselves were able, better able to notice the telltale signs, or sort of be better aware of of somebody who might be trying to exploit them. Right. So that that's a bill that went into effect this year. Uh, that's going to have a huge impact, hopefully, on prevention efforts. Right. So that kids don't fall victim in these situations. Right. Um, and then the second bill that passed there that uh, that we were that we developed and were integral in was Uh, legislation that is helping to restore the right to vote of formerly incarcerated children Um, previously children who had run lifetime parole or lengthy post supervision release conditions would have been prevented from becoming eligible to ever vote again in their lifetime Uh, but now thanks to uh, legislation we worked on down there uh, we are able to uh, undo that policy and give people uh, hope that they can be discharged from lifetime parole and that they can have their voting rights restored if they were a child at the time that they committed uh, their offense. And, so, and and the people impacted by that, right, um, that new policy, were extremely happy. You know, We got to see some of them get interviewed on the local news channel. And that joy, that happiness, that in fact knowing that what you're doing is tangibly making a difference in people's lives and that their lives are going to be enriched and that communities are going to be enriched as a, as, a, as a result of that, um you know there's that's what keeps you going it's sort of the hope and the love right it's the love you spread from the work that you do and the hope that your work hopefully gives to other people that things will get better and that their lives that their lives matter and that they'll continue to make manifest the the glory of god that is in all of us you know
0: Amen to that that's a great story i like that uh simple but yet poignant change, meaning that we get to vote. I think one thing happens to the morale of a human being is if they feel insignificant and that they don't have, they're no longer a placeholder in the world energetically or even just their life matters at some point, the idea of having a vote, I never thought about it that way, James, but that makes a lot of sense that you could do that simple, albeit probably very tedious, work on your part to get a person to feel important again. Isn't that funny? You can't get people to vote that have the right to, but yet (laughs) the ones that don't have the right to want to. Isn't that a little upside down, I think? So what I'm hearing you say is that uh, your organization has to stay fluid Like it it sounds like because the, the laws that are coming up only come up because of the situation becomes so out of control and, you know, unmanageable that the laws are coming around because of its severity of our psyche on these children and people involved, 1920, our next generation of kids. So I think that sounds uh, reasonable. And the challenge is once you get the law up there, you know, there's always loopholes, and people always try to figure it out. But it sounds like your group, especially with the people and the bipartisan, have a good handle on what needs to be done moving forward.
1: Yeah, that's right. I, you know, I, I like to think of us as... Uh, you know, one of the premier organizations on human rights for kids in this country, in part because, in large part, because of our board of directors and their incredible leadership because, you know, we generate, you know, policy research on these ideas and we're doing this research into all of the problems that currently exist in our justice system and our legal system and these gaps, right, that, you know, went previously unreported or unidentified. Um, And nobody had really sort of come up with a solution uh, for how to address it. So, for example... And it was Sarah's law, right? The the issue was in Sarah's case was that, you know, um, when you look at traditional self defense laws, for example, uh, the reason it didn't apply to Sarah's because there usually has to be uh, the person has to prove that they were in imminent harm. In other words, that they felt in that exact moment that their life, you know, was going to end or that they were going to be harmed. And so you know, in cases like Sarah, where, you know, that's not the case, right? They can't prove that element because, you know, maybe they planned out, you know, like in Sarah's case, she planned out uh, to, to kill her abuser, right? But it doesn't take away from the, the, the fact that Sarah was still a child and she was a child victim, and so we needed to expand the law uh, to account for that. And so we identified that gap, and we said, there's a way we can do this, right, where uh, we make sure that Kids in Sarah's situations don't receive life without parole sentences. And this is how policymakers can do it. Right? So it's sort of looking at these human rights violations that are happening, these gaps in the law, identifying it, and then developing policy solutions that can be enacted by policymakers to make sure that these unjust situations don't occur. The same thing, you know, with the law that you just mentioned in Arkansas, it's the same sort of dynamic. We had a difficult time in Arkansas because the Arkansas State Constitution actually uh, says that in order for somebody to be able to have their right to vote restored, they have to have uh, completed their parole. term, Right. So, but if you you know had a lifeless parole when you get out, you have you have to spend the rest of your life on parole. You're not going to be able to vote in your lifetime. So you know we had to develop a mechanism whereby these kids could go back to the parole board, have their parole term discharged by the parole board after five years and then have the right to vote uh, restored after that, right? So it's sort of looking at these issues in unique and novel ways that other uh, folks haven't been able to do before and say, we can solve that. We can come up with a solution and here's a bipartisan way to do it and, and we're doing it on behalf of our kids, right? And so that's the thing that I think really inspires me, gets me up every day, knowing that we have tremendous value add in the human rights space and the human rights community in the United States of America because there's no other organization like us, there's no other organization that has a bipartisan board of directors with people from as diverse places as we do uh, leading the march for change and making children's lives better all throughout the country.
0: But I remind everyone I'm talking to James Dole. He is the CEO and founder of Human Rights for Kids, HRFK, humanrightsforkids.org. We're almost finished, James, but I cannot help myself but to bring up the topic that is in everyone's thoughts at the moment or should be. We've been talking this hour about people that have been incarcerated, children that have had unfortunate situations with their family. I don't want people to get the idea that we're talking about one subculture of America. This trafficking and all of the side things that go with it, they uh, affect everyone in the communities, and that includes people on the other side of tracks, and people that live in gated communities, which brings up my last topic that I want to discuss with you, which is the new Jeffrey Epstein case. I know everybody's talking about it. I know it's it's uh, shocking at some level, but I bring it up because I want people to understand that sexual abuse and physical abuse and drugs and alcohol and every this dominated uh, psyche over kids and this ACE um synonym goes across all borders I want you if you can for the next few minutes talk about your thoughts about this horrific thing that's been bubbled up now and in all of the news about the sex trafficking cases alleged sex trafficking of what's going on and your thoughts on that
1: yeah absolutely I Mm -hmm. mean it's a it's a horrific, horrendous case, and, you know, it's 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 typical of what happens every single day in America, right? Um, and, you know, what we know from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children is that roughly 100,000 American children, these are U.S.-born children, are exploited in prostitution every single year. Um, and, you know, folks like Jeffrey Epstein, who have this access to, to, to wealth and power and sort of was cloaked in it, was able to operate seemingly within impunity, even from the criminal justice system as he preyed upon young girls, right? And it's not the first time we've seen this, right? Uh, these sort of uh, wealthy, powerful people preying on uh, young girls, right? Uh, another mm-hmm. example of this is the R. Kelly case, right, uh, where he was That's engaged what, in the right. same of yeah. Mm-hmm. And so there's a recurring theme, right? It's the Bill Cosby, similar dynamic, right? So, you know, and what you have are. are Girls And as you mentioned, I think earlier in the program, you know, there's things that are going on, right, at at home, right? And sometimes it's just like, and this is where parents really need to be on guard, you know, about their children um, from any background. But, you know, when kids go through uh, changes in their life, you know, if there's any sort of stress, whether it's divorce or, you know, whatever it might be, Regardless of background, that is going to have a profound impact on that child, and that can make them vulnerable to all sorts of things, particularly child predators. Uh, Predators uh, prey on the insecurities of kids. They uh, target kids who they believe to be vulnerable. Um, or, in in the case of, uh, of Epstein, you know, pay other kids to, to try to recruit kids to go along with it, right? And so, um, you know, and he had a, you know, very extended trafficking network, and um, it's kind of similar to, again, the R. Kelly scenario as well. And so it's really important for people to be on guard about you know how child predators operate, and to know that they're looking for those vulnerabilities in children, they're looking for a way to exploit it, and um, and that was the case here. And thank goodness, you know, it's it as horrible as as this case is. You know, the the one uh, I think ray of light of, of any if there is any light to be found in the law, it's that you know the incredible reporting by the Miami Herald and and the folks who reopened this case. Are, are going to give hopefully these these young girls and these victims, um, you know, a chance to have some semblance of justice and closure. And you know, we we pray for them. It's it's a very difficult road ahead um, as as they go through that process, and it's going to be very very hard. Uh, but. You know, we're, it's, it's good that they will have their day in court and their opportunity to share their story and to, and to hold him accountable for the horrible crimes that he committed against them. Um, and the same thing in, in the R. Kelly case as well. Um, and I think that's what we need to our or, uh, folks in the community to make sure that we're holding these child predators accountable. And that we send the unmistakable message that no one is above the law, and if you're rich and powerful, you know you're not going to uh, escape uh, criminal punishment for, you know, targeting children, for grooming children, for uh, trafficking children. That this is not going to be something that's going to be tolerated in our community. So um, it's a yeah, it's a horrific case, and you know, it's it's unfortunate that. He was able to operate with impunity for so long, and that there are so many victims uh, in this case. But um, you know, hopefully justice will be done, and uh, he won't be able to hurt another child again.
0: Do you think there's going to be new laws that come out from that? I mean, what do you think the outcome is an overall umbrella? you know, other than prosecution for him and, and uh vindication for the victims, hopefully that they can go on with their life. Do you see any broader stroke of legislation coming out of that? I know it's kinda of early to ask, but you're in the middle of it, so I thought you would know.
1: Yeah, no, it's 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 tough to know. Uh, you know, as as more information comes to light and we get a clearer picture of everything uh, that happened, uh, I think certainly that'll be part of the conversation I think that's it's an important part of every conversation in big cases like this break which is you know what could be done to make sure this doesn't happen again, and also what additional tools might be necessary to make sure that it doesn't happen um so it's It's always tough to know um I know you know right now there there at least there's a criminal statutes that are in place. There are also really great civil statutes that are available to. So one of the things that should be available to the victims, um, in addition to uh, you know victims' crime compensation, they should also be able to bring a civil case. Uh, against uh, the offender in this case um, to recover uh, punitive damages as well for the harm that he's caused them. Um, and so that, that's something that's also covered by uh, the federal statutes in the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, as well as most state uh, laws as well. There are these sorts of protections in place for victims. But um, you know, one of the things that's going to be really important, though, is to make sure and this is an area where I think states have historically fell down, is making sure that there are really good uh, victim assistance laws in place so that the, all of the victims in this case, there's a, there's a method where uh, law enforcement and other folks can go out and identify these victims and to make sure that they have everything that they need um, in terms of counseling, therapy, whatever it is so that they can begin to, to, you know, move on with their lives and and move into the next chapter as they go through this process, but also, you know, after this process as well. It's really important that, um, you know, they have everything that they need and that there's a societal response that reflects that.
0: I'm glad that you brought up the victims. I mean, they get lost in all of that. It sounds like your organization, Human Rights for Kids, HRFK, HumanRightsForKids.org really has a handle on the victim side, and I think that's coming from your background and your dedication to making sure they get, don't get lost in the process. So thank you. One more time, um, Human Rights for Kids. This is. I had a conversation with James Stoll, the CEO and founder. You're also on uh, Twitter and Facebook. Can you give us those that information too?
1: Absolutely. On Facebook, you can find us just under Human Rights for Kids. And on Twitter, you can find us on our our Twitter handle, which is HRSK underscore ORG.
0: And you are a nonprofit organization, so you are always looking for donations. I know everyone says that, but nowadays you really have to be careful and plan where you put your dollars. And it sounds like this is a very, very important work that you're doing out there, James. So you do take donations, correct?
1: Absolutely. We live off of them. So <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so definitely you can uh, go to our website. You can donate to our website. Um, our information is also there. Again, that's humanrightsforkids.org. And you can find uh, our, our mailing address at the bottom. So if you wanted to write a check, you can do that as well. Uh, We just launched a Child Hero initiative, and it's our effort to try to get more folks to become recurring donors. And if you become a recurring donor, uh, you receive the designation as a Child Hero and you get listed on our website as as one of the child heroes, or you can stay anonymous, whichever you prefer. But um, definitely go to our website, check us out, Um, and we would love to have your support and work with us. And even if you can't make a donation, um, you can sign up for a listserv so you can stay abreast of all the different ways that you can be uh, supportive of our work to advance human rights protections for children across the country.
0: Love it. And on top of it, this is a guy that's in Washington, D.C., He's on boots on the ground, for goodness sakes. The man's been up there fighting for a long time. Let's keep him up there. He sounds like he's doing a good job. Thanks, James. I appreciate for joining us uh, today and talking about such an important aspect of trafficking that I think it's working. I think it's working. It's going to be slow, but it's working. So thank you very much.
1: Thank you for having us. It was our pleasure.
0: Again, I want to thank Imagine Publicity on Air for allowing me to guest host. I really am appreciating and learning a lot about a subject that's hard for people to listen to, but I think it's important to understand. So till next time, we'll talk about life.